for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke. For with, with all authority, do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. We, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for Well, welcome everyone. As mentioned, my name is Michael, and I am excited to be here with you all today. It's great to see everyone. It has been, feels like a, quite a while since I was last here. I know there's been a few times um, in the last year, John has invited me, and um, I went from probably the first half of COVID not having very much at all to do to the second half this past year being in one of those jobs that there's not enough people and things were crazy. So um, the number of times I turned them down just felt I wasn't sure how I could add one more thing into the week just with how, how crazy it's been. So uh, it's been longer than I would have liked uh, before being here with all of you, but I'm happy to be here today. Uh, today's passage, Titus 2, 11 uh, and onwards, if you have a Bible near you, I'd encourage you to kind of keep a marker in it or a, a finger on that passage because we'll refer back to it often. We're going to zip into there briefly, uh, little kind of snippets or phrases uh, that we're going to look back at again and again. So if you want to kind of keep that handy nearby where you can reference back to it, we'll be doing that a lot. Um, so let's start out with me. Let me pray for us here and pray for myself, really. God, thank you for this community, for this group who loves one another, who steps up and serves and supports one another and is engaged and involved. Uh, thank you for um, what they have formed here and are forming here and how you are working their lives. I do pray, I echo praying for the Betzes that this could be a week that is refreshing, that it's fun for them to be on the coast, that it is um, good for them as a family, as husband and wife, and that it is also um, just restful and refreshing when I come back, um, able to plug in, but um, really haven't been rejuvenated during this time. 
God, I do want to pray for myself that, Holy Spirit, you would speak through me, um, that you would recall to my mind all the things that uh, you would like me to share here, and um, that it would be really your words coming through. So if there are things that uh, you don't want spoken, that you would just wipe those from my mind and instead uh, really direct and speak through me during this time. Um, I know that I can feel anxious that I will forget uh, pieces or things or stuff like that. And so I just pray that you would be in charge and control of that, God. Um, and on the flip side as well, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be at work uh, through everyone else here, really kind of the, during this period as hearers of your word, that um, you would be working in lives and hearts, that it wouldn't just be something that needs to be sat through, um, that is an obligation, but really is a way that you can speak uh, into lives. Um, and you are the one God who knows what's going on in each and every individual here and in each and every family. And I pray that uh, what you desire to convict or encourage or um, apply to each person's life, that that would happen, that your spirit would be at work uh, really accomplishing that in all of our lives. I pray that for myself as well here today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So faith versus works, justification by faith or justification by works. Uh, the James, the brother of Jesus versus the apostle Paul or Galatians, the book of Galatians versus the book of James. Um, you've probably heard kind of how are these two things synthesized, works versus faith? How are they related? Um, but this has been a big question or a struggle at various times through church, both in church history and then kind of something we still wrestle with today. Uh, we are not going to solve that problem or explain the synthesization of those two pieces today, um, but I do want to bring it up because we are going to kind of be talking kind of sort of around that, even though we won't be solving the, the uh, solution between those two books. Uh, one thing I want to point out is that when people say faith versus works or Paul versus James, the brother of Jesus, really kind of what they're thinking of is uh, the book of James or kind of a, a bad sort of interpretation of the book of James versus the book of Galatians or sort of a, a bad interpretation of the book of Galatians. Um, as you see today, that's not, um, if you started somewhere else, um, really started with our passage today with Titus you wouldn't have that same kind of conflict between the two where you would say, oh, the scripture can contradict itself, or there are two different ideas here that really are, are contradictory and, and conflict. Um, and today we're actually going to be looking at something written by Paul, but it's, it's old Paul. And it's a very different tone and a very different voice and a very different focus than what you read in some of the other books that you might be more familiar with, whether it's Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, those sorts of things of Paul. Um, so... I want us to be, my goal is for us to hear from Paul afresh with, with new ears that he has a bit of a different focus, a bit of a different method, uh, sort of this, this old Paul than what we know, kind of the younger, fiery Paul of what he says in those other passages. Um, and to be surprised how maybe it doesn't, um, if you started here, it would be, you wouldn't have the same questions or about conflict of like, wait, is this opposite of what's said in the book of James? It would feel like the two really fit together nicely here. Um, so that's kind of our goal of that. Um, before I start with that, though, I do want to make an observation about that uh, faith versus works, justification by faith versus justification by works, not as a solution, but an op observation about, uh, about kind of that conflict. And that is, 
from what we can see in scripture, the, the side that Paul was railing against, so that justification by works, was not actually people going around and saying that you should be justified by works. That's what you do that uh, makes you right with Christ. It was more people going around saying that, okay, you, you want uh, the Gentiles, the Greeks, everyone else to be able to come in and join us. That's great. Let's do that. But in order for them to do that, they have to become like us. They need to be Jewish. They need to take on the markers of our culture and become like us. So they need to be circumcised. They need to celebrate all of our festivals and holidays. They need to eat certain foods and not eat other foods. And as long as they do that, that's great. Have them, they can come on in and our, our Jewish Christian church here, they're welcome to join that. And so it is Paul's then argument against them that he says, you know what you are doing? Why that is so bad is because that is justification by works. You are requiring people to do these other things in order to be justified before God, in order to belong and be part of this community and this group of believers, of the people of God. And so as Paul actually pointing out that you're saying is just do these things, but in reality, you're adding something in that must be done other than just faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're not actually going around just saying justification by works. Paul is pointing out, he's arguing against them by saying, the reason what you're requiring is so bad is because that is justification by works. So I want to start with an application to our lives from that. And this is backwards. This is not an application at the end. Uh, we will get kind of more into what Paul says for our lives, and that will be very rooted in the scriptural passage here today. But I do want to start with um, this application of, uh, of observation of that and then kind of how that applies to our, our lives by asking the question, what are things today that we may be requiring other people to do to be like in order to be able to belong with us? So are there things that we culturally make people do if they want to become part of our group? part of our followers. A um, couple of examples of that. Is it a requirement? Do I make people look like me? Do they need to wear button-on shirt and tight jeans or some other markers of the look? Do they need to feel like they have it all together um, in order to uh, come in these doors to be part of our community? Or could someone who lives on the street who is addicted to drugs be a part of this group? Um, the converse of that also, I want to ask the question to our culturally, we are huge on authenticity and vulnerability. That is a big thing today. That wasn't always the case in the past, but that is becoming bigger and bigger with our generation of the kind of next group of people growing up here. Uh, in our small groups, if there is somebody who were to join us who comes from a background of culture that is very shame versus honor based and is not comfortable sharing vulnerably about themselves for other reasons of the implications of that, would they be accepted? Could they be a part of our group? Um, could they be in it? Um, and those are just examples. And I would encourage you, those are not, I'm not trying to say here that um, vulnerability is bad. We should not um, aim for vulnerability. And I'm also not trying to say that God is totally fine with a drug addicted lifestyle. Um, but I do want to ask the larger question, and I, I put those two forward as a way to push it. Uh, are there things in our lives that, are, that we require people to be like in order to belong? Do you have to do those things first in order to belong? And if so, we're falling in that same trap of there are works that must be done in order to become here versus being justified by faith. 
So rather than just thinking of, okay, it needs to be by justification, by faith, by faith, by faith, what I want us to do is think, are there stuff that just basic assumptions about the way we live that are expectations of others that they must first have before they will be accepted in and be a part of this group? Um, that's a hard question. That's something that uh, if you would like, we can talk about more in the Q&A at the end. Um, but uh, I do want to throw that out there and there. Um, and again, no specific marker that I'm saying is a right thing or a wrong thing. I want to ask the question though, are we requiring that as a first basis before you come to anybody here? Um, so that's sort of a, my application is to ask ourselves that question. Is there things that I have blinders for that I don't even realize are really cultural stuff that's a part of, a part of us that I'm requiring of people to come here? All right, so Old Paul, our passage today. Uh, we are in the book of Titus. Titus is considered one of the um, one of the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters, and the reason it is, is there's uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus are all considered that. It's because Paul is writing not to a church, um, but to an individual here. He's pastoring these people, Titus. It's a, the letter, Dear Titus, from Paul kind of thing, where it's we actually are reading somebody else's mail here. Um, things like Ephesians are written to the church at Ephesus, but at the same time are actually designed to be read by other churches as well. So it's less of a snooping on somebody's mail than this is. Um, I also mentioned, I call it Old Paul because this, uh, we don't know exactly when these letters are written, but kind of the general consensus is that uh, all of Paul's other letters are much earlier, and it's these sort of three that are kind of end of life much later on uh, in his ministry, at least a decade on, probably more than that, um, when, he, when he writes these letters compared to the other ones. Um, so this is very much a, a later voice of Paul, but I, I don't want to confuse you by saying, what I'm not saying here is that this is the uh, new improved Paul that stuff he says in the other passages are kind of his early thoughts and that now he's really worked it out. It's more so that it's a different season. It's a different uh, issue that he's addressing. It's a different person. It's, it's Titus in this passage um, that he's addressing. So when Paul writes this, um, he's really passing on the mantle of the church to the next generation. Um, and what's kind of cool here is we talked about uh, that, like who's being invited in, who's part of the group, who's in Paul, um, sees that the good news is for all the nations, all the peoples. It's for the Greeks and the Gentiles as well, not just the Jews. And he's decided with this, it's pretty cool that with his next leadership, it's not going to be that, okay, that's true, but we really need some Jewish leaders that are really kind of know what it is. Um, no, he sets up Timothy, who's a half Jew, who's half Greek, half Jew. And then he sets up Titus as this other leader here who is wholly a Greek. He's not Jewish at all. And Paul has decided that it's really important that these people are the next leaders in the church. Um, so he writes to them, um, this letter to Titus, it really is about, um, hey, Titus, I set you in this area, and I uh, want you to be over this area. You're not just like leading one church, but I want you to set up pastors or overseers in the area. So the chapter one of Titus has a whole lot of um, qualifications for leadership, of like, you know, when you're looking for people, find people that are like this, and you list them off, and says what people should be like in the church. And that's kind of his main thrust in this letter is to tell people, to tell Titus, um, set up the church, lead the church. You are, you are the person in charge in this area. And this is, this is kind of who we're looking for as far as leaders. Um, and then he gets into this, our passage here in Titus 2 and onward. Um, so it's, it's very much an older Paul. Um, what's interesting about this is there are a lot of circles that if you went and I were to say that Paul wrote Titus or Paul wrote first and second Timothy, um, I would just be laughed at. Um, if uh, you are theologically a little more liberal, 
you're pretty inclined to believe that it's uh, for sure given that Paul did not write these letters and that these are somebody else wrote them in the name of Paul pretending like it was him. Um, and to the point where it wouldn't be even be a discussion, it would just be kind of mocking me for saying that Paul wrote them. Um, I do think that Paul wrote these letters, uh, that that's my position on it. I think that uh, I'm convinced actually by the evidence of the writing there, but I think there's something beneficial. And the reason I mentioned that a lot of people think he did not is because the voice, the tone is very different than what you get in other Pauline letters. Um, so that is actually a pretty neat insight that's worth considering as, so a lot of the arguments for Paul not writing this point out like, well, it says this in this letter, it uses these words, or the tone is this way, or here's these different subjects. And that's actually really beneficial stuff to look at because that shows us how Titus is different than a lot of the other writings of Paul. And it helps us understand more what is being said in Titus in this book here. Um, so we're going to see some of that here. We're going to see some of those contrasts between what you would kind of normally think Paul would say and what he actually says here as old Paul in uh, the book of Titus. All right, so let us dive into our passage. And really, a lot of this is going to be uh, three word studies uh, because there's some rich language here. Paul uses Greek terms that are kind of had a lot of weight to them that are they're not new things. They're stuff that would really resonate to Titus and Greek uh, thinkers, people that were Greek, it would be some words that had a lot of meaning to them already. So we kind of need to unpack some of that. So uh, we're going to talk about appearing as one of the words. We're going to talk about um, sensible, or it's most, uh, your ESV translated as self-controlled. And then the third word is godliness. So we're really going to focus in on kind of a, a word study on those three words um, and say some things about them here. Um, but Titus 2.11, let me start by rereading that portion. For the grace of God has appeared, and that's one of our words there, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, another one of our words, upright and godly lives, that's that third word there, in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, again the word appears, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So in this passage, we have two appearings uh, that are taking place here. And you likely are familiar with the term already, but not yet as a way to describe where we're living right now, that um, God's work, the kingdom of God has pierced into this age and is to some degree currently already present, but also not yet. Um, Paul actually talks about that using different language here. I feel like already but not yet is a really useful, beneficial uh, term to describe kind of our present age, but Paul describes it a little bit different. He talks um, about the grace of God has appeared, and notice that's past tense, has appeared, and then just a little bit later he talks about we were waiting in hope for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So we're in this in-between period, in-between two appearance, grace of God has appeared, glory has not yet appeared, but will. Um, appearing is also, it's the same word, uh, chapter one in the beginning intro, Paul says, uh, um, he uses this word that is translated here, the um, manifested. And I really like that word. It's the same word in Greek as this appeared. Um, the reason I like manifest is because it really gives this idea that there's something that is already true, but now is revealed to you. So it's not, appeared does not mean it didn't exist before. So don't think that appeared like the grace of God didn't exist or the, the glory of God does not exist and then it will. It's more that 
we're in a completely dark room, but there, these chairs are all here. They're all set up, pitch black in here. And all of a sudden the light switch is flipped on and they appear or they're manifested or you realize what was already true. So this, all the furniture was already set up like this. It's always been true. And now all of a sudden it's revealed to us. It's manifested, it's made known. So that's the sense of the appearing is the glory of God has appeared, has now been made known. We, sorry, not the glory, the grace of God has appeared, has been made known to us where it, it wasn't necessarily understood before. There are hints of it. Um, God talked about his plan for all peoples um, through all time that he was going to be sending this person. But at the proper time, when Jesus was born, when he died and rose again, this grace was revealed to us. So that has happened. Uh, the glory piece has not yet happened. Um, the interesting thing about uh, the future part of glory is for me, when I read the word glory, it, I don't know if this is your experience, but it doesn't do a lot for me in the Bible. I, I guess it's, I just, I don't know. I, when I think of glory, I think of maybe sparkles and uh, amazing, beautiful things and maybe some gold, and, but I, I don't have a great sense. And this may be just my core, uh, like that I have not really spent enough time really thinking about glory. Um, but I also think there is a sense in which it hasn't been revealed like that. There's some understanding there that God, the Bible does talk again and again about glory, glorification, that this, this coming, this return of Christ and how amazing it's going to be. But it's also a little bit not really understandable. Like there's a, a city in New Jerusalem coming out of the sky that's going to be made for us and be amazing and wonderful that we know there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. But what will this really look like? Uh, it's kind of confusing. We hope for that, uh, but I struggle to really understand what that looks like. And I think some of that is it has not appeared yet. It has not been made known in the same way that God's grace has been made known. So we look for it and hope, and we understand that there's something there, and then it's going to be amazing, and it's going to restore all things in a final way. Uh, but it's also something that we hope and we look forward to, and, we, and has not fully been manifested to us yet. Um, in contrast to that, the grace of God, um, I hope that we continue to be floored by the grace of God towards us, um, that God in the right time sent his son who died and rose again, that we too might have life with him. Um, but let's look at what happens with, uh, what does he talk about the grace of God doing when it appears? Um, so if you know Paul, if you know young Paul, if you've read Galatians, if you read Ephesians, um, what you would expect if grace of God has appeared and brings salvation for all people, and what does it do? Well, the grace of God, usually it forgives us. Like, that's a pretty common phrase in uh, Paul, that grace of God brings about forgiveness. And that's true. I, that is absolutely 100% true. It's worth focusing on um, the forgiveness that comes through the grace of God. Uh, but that's not what he says here. What uh, Paul says here is for the grace of God, um, what does it do? In verse 12, it trains us. So that's a little bit different of a phrase than kind of we're used to with uh, Paul. If you're just kind of skimming along, yeah, yeah, normal Paul ideas, normal Paul things, you wouldn't think, wait, the grace of God does something active in us, it trains us, and it trains us in how we live. So it trains us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce unworldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Um, so grace of God appears, and we are trained to live this way. So that's what's happening right now in this present age between the two appearings. In the already but not yet is this we are being trained present tense we're being trained um, to live these sorts of lives lives that are self-controlled or sensible upright and um, godly um, so let's uh let's talk a bit about those three things uh so well let's talk about two of them 
Um, so first of all, godly lives or godliness, um, that is a very rich uh, term here. Um, what I, I want to emphasize that when I when you see the word godly, like if I were to ask you, what does it mean to be godly? Kind of the first sort of thing is, well, it's godlike. It's being like God, right? That's sort of the direction I would go because that's uh, reasonable for our English word godly that um, it's two words put together, godly and being like God. And so, yeah, we look at, we think about God's like, we try to be like that. That's godly. Um, that's a reasonable assumption, but the word is a lot more rich than that. Um, it is a compound word, but the compound is not the word God with being like him. Um, actually, the word God is not in this word at all um, in Greek. The word uh, godly and compound between, on the one hand, you have good or proper or right. So that's kind of this first part, first part I should go here. Good, proper, right. And then the second half of the word is reverence or religion or um, yeah, kind of attitude towards God. So it's, it's not so much being like him, but it's the way we act towards him. Um, so you have really, there's a strong sense of duty in this. So God like him, you know, yeah, I should probably do that, um, but it doesn't really have that same sense of duty in it. Um, but this is a lot more, the word is more about what is owed to God, the way that I ought to live. It's God-centered, God-focused. Um, it's saying the way that I live my life, there's a way that I is expected in response to God. There's a duty and owing there. Um, so in old Greek terminology, you would have um, the gods. Um, think of Homer, think of Iliad, the Odyssey, like there's proper ways that they were supposed to act. And uh, if you didn't, you were probably gonna be sent on a long odyssey where you couldn't just go home because you disrespected the gods. Uh, so this has more of this sense of uh, godliness of there is some, a duty that you must perform, a way that you must act. And the crazy thing is it's not just, maybe today I might think, oh, well that probably means certain amount of praying, maybe I read my Bible, but it's really the actions that, the ways that you live your life, it's more than just kind of these markers of like spiritual things that we would think of. Um, so for instance, there's a passage that talks about uh, widows and supporting widows and says, well, if uh, we should, church should support widows and provide for them, but if they have their own family members that are still alive, first their children should learn how to take care of them. And the word that's used is for taking care of them or providing financially is uh, their own family should learn to practice godliness towards these widows. Um, so it's the same term here. And it's really like, what should they do? They should care for them. They should give financially to take care of them. They should act in their, the way that is their proper duty. Um, and even though this is in relation to God, it's actually towards their mothers. Um, so this word has a very kind of strong uh, way, of, way of the way we act in this world and in, in everything that we do um, tied into it there. Uh, so, so that's godliness. Um, I want to talk about the word that's translated self-controlled here. So um, the grace of God trains us in godliness and to live self-controlled or sensible lives. Sensible is another way that it's translated here. Uh, there's two, um, well, sensible actually also is in that intro Titus 1 passage. Um, the word godliness is the word appearing, um, but also sensible. And then there's another cool passage here. Uh, Basically, Paul goes through this list of saying, here's what I want the old men to act like. Here's what I want the young men to act like, the old women, the young women. Um, and I'm going to read that to you. Uh, and I just want you to, you don't need to focus so much on the specific words of how he says they should act, but I want you to hear kind of the, um, the tone, the flavor of it all. Uh, there are 
So let me pull it up here. It's right before this um, section of the beginning of uh, Titus chapter 2. So it says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, that um, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train their young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then just stops. So he has this long list of older men like this, older women like this, and he goes on and on and on, younger women like this. And then when he gets to young men, he says one word. He says they should be sensible. Teach the young men to be sensible. Um, the word here, another place that it's used is uh, in the story about the demonic man who had the legion inside of him, if you remember that, where Jesus comes along and heals him and sends the legion of the pigs and they all run and they leap into the water and drown there, um, that story. So what it says about the man is before, when he was this demonic, uh, demon-possessed man, everybody tried to control him. They couldn't. They'd chain him up. He would break the chains. Uh, he would attack anybody who went that way. He'd rip off his clothes. Um, nobody could go down that road because if you went there, the guy would come out and attack you and beat you up. And it was, it was totally out of control. He was totally, uh, you couldn't go near him over that area. And then after Jesus came and freed him, it says, He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he is in his right mind. Um, so this word, in his right mind, it's the same word here, this be sensible. Uh, so beforehand, you have uh, the way he was acting before, all this craziness, all this out of control, out of this, nobody could control him, couldn't control himself, and now he is in his right mind, he is sensible. And that's basically what Paul says here to the young men. He says, we're going through this whole list of old men do this and this and this, young men. Uh, old women do this and this and this, young women, this and this and this. Then he gets a young man, he's young men, tell them to be sensible. Um, it's really this kind of just this one word thing of he says, tell them not to act so much like the demon possessed man before when he was demon possessed. Tell them to act like the demon possessed man after the demons are gone, who's in his right mind. Um, and that's that's what we are told here by, by Paul is to live sensible lives. There's an intentionality in that word. Um, there's a, it's not just sort of being pushed all around, uh, whatever happens today, I'm reacting. It's kind of the opposite of just reacting. It's very much intentionality in how I live my life. Um, this, again, is a very strong Greek word. It's uh, like it would, as soon as he, Paul used that word, there was a lot that had a lot of thought of that got into it. It's a very rich word. Um, so uh, you, it does say, it talks about here, training us to renounce ungodliness and the word worldly passions later in our, our um, passage that says not being slaves to various passions and pleasures. Uh, so definitely Greek thought, there's this idea that like uh, a human being could be ruled by your passions, your desires, your uh, whatever, they're going to push you in all different directions. Um, but a civilized person, what you ought to do to um, live your, your life, doing your duty as a, a citizen of the state, of the city, is control those passions, rule it with reason, um, with logic should be in charge over that. Um, and Paul kind of, he doesn't totally embrace uh, their whole thought process of the structure of human, but what he does here is he does say, don't let those passions rule you. Um, be self-controlled, be sensible in how you live, be intentional in each moment of how you live your life here. So it's, uh, there's very much this idea that we are not just moved around by the wind of whatever we feel in any moment. It's really a 
the intentionality in how we live our lives and being, being sensible here. Um, I want to point out another contrast in this passage because uh, we're getting to it as we go through this uh, chapter two here is um, when he talks about the next appearing. So waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then verse 14 says, who gave himself for us to, um, this is a common phrase you'll hear in, in Paul that uh, Jesus gave himself for us. And, and what do you think? What is common? What do we normally hear in young Paul? What, what happens next? Uh, Galatians 1 forces, he gave himself um, uh, basically for our sins um, to free us from the present evil age. So there's very much this, the common thing that you would expect is that uh, we are, uh, our sins are forgiven basically from uh, Jesus giving himself for us. But that's not where Paul goes with it here. Um, what Paul says in this passage is um, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, making a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and make us zealous for good works. Now that is very different than what we often hear in Paul. Old Paul here is saying something that's kind of surprising the direction that he takes us, um, that we are uh, no longer, it's very much action-oriented about deeds and how we're living our lives. Uh, the word good works is all throughout uh, the Pauline epistles, the old Paul writings here. Um, you have this idea of lawlessness uh, is very much about our actions and how we live, that we're not just going out and doing anything, but we're living an ordered lifestyle with uh, in those intentional ways that we ought to live, very much this duty sense of the godliness, that godliness word. Um, so there's very much, uh, yeah, this change to not just that, oh, well, now you're forgiven, but actually now you're living a different way. That's what God has accomplished in your life has made you someone who lives a different way. Um, and what's what I find interesting today when I read that is that there's just this sort of expectation that you can do this. Um, there's not uh, this, okay, so lead a godly life, and live sensibly, but I know it's really hard and you probably can't do that, but you really should try. And Paul doesn't say that. He just sort of explains to us, like, the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection was so that you can live like this. And he just sort of expects it, that you'll do that. Um, and that can kind of be so against my lived experience that uh, sometimes that's a struggle to read. Like, wait, 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 why are you asking this much of me? I don't, I don't see how that is a possibility here. Um, I am encouraged that later on in this passage, Paul gives us the answer to that. Uh, he does not just leave us with instruction of do this, and then it feels too hard and we feel lost in the midst of it. Um, but Paul is still Paul, and there are, even though this is old Paul, there's uh, two things that he says kind of towards the end of uh, our passage today in chapter three. Um, one is, let me first point out, just for anybody who is unsure of that, wait a minute, is old Paul now saying we are just by bad works? Uh, he's pretty clear that that's not the case. So chapter three, verse four, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness that God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Okay, so why did he save us? Are we, is it because we're justified by works? It is not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. So are we justified by works? Paul says, 
let me let me state it explicitly. It's not because of works. It's because of you're justified by grace. Um, so all of this focus on good works, good works, good works is not as a method of justification. This is the purpose for which you were justified by faith. The death and resurrection of Jesus transformed your life so that you now are heirs who can live this life zealous for good works. Or he says in the very end of our passage, devoted to good works. Um, but that is, that is the goal. That is the purpose. So there is this salvation that is accomplished by faith. And the goal of it is making you into a people that are now adopted as God's kids who can live lives devoted to good works. Um, so it's, don't miss that. Paul is not saying, hey, let's put this in the place of faith. He's saying, this is the end result. This is the goal. This is what we, God wants to accomplish in your life. And he's actually doing it right now in this present age. This is not up uh, later on in that appearing of glory period. This is right now in between. So the grace of God, past tense, took place. And right now in this present age, grace is training you to live this way. Um, so it's not by works that we are justified. It is by faith. But um, this is what's taking place in our lives now. And how can that be? How does that take place? Um, Paul gives us that answer too. So he tells us the purpose for which it's going to take place is that we could become devoted to good works. But he also tells us how. He says, uh, this is verse 3, verse 5. Um, so not because of works done, but um, how does this happen? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So how do we become these people that can do these things that Paul expects of us? It's because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Holy Spirit renews us and empowers us. And it's through the Holy Spirit that these things can take place. Um, so the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ justifies us and makes it possible that through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can become people who are devoted to good works, who are living godly lives, um, sensibly, intentionally doing the duty that we're owed towards God, um, living the way that he wants of us here. Um, that's really what, what Paul is saying here. And it's a very different message than, than the young Paul. He very much, old Paul here, um, good works, good works, good works. But he's saying, this is the purpose for which you were called. Um, God, is, God is making you into this person right now in this present age who will live this way. Uh, one, one other thing I want to say about that word godliness, um, just kind of to make it more rich for you. I mentioned reverence piety, religion, uh, the word piety or pietas, that's what when uh, these scriptures were translated into Latin, the word that they used for this um, godliness was the word piety. Um, there's another word that was translated. So in Paul's day or Jesus' day, um, most people were reading scripture of the Old Testament in Greek um, because there had been, even though the Romans were now in charge, uh, before the Romans, the Greeks had come through, you might have heard of Alexander the Great, conquered the whole known world. And basically his culture was so strong, he, everybody started following Greek customs, including speaking Greek. Um, and so the language was in danger of dying out where people were no longer going to be able to uh, read scripture, the Old Testament. Uh, and so there was this uh, big translation project that took place um, called, uh, where it was translated into Greek. And that version that people read now in Greek is called the Septuagint. Um, so there's, there's a lot of lore, there's a lot of legend about how that took place, of it being this very miraculous thing of both the speed with which it was translated, the number of people and how accurate it was. Um, 
But really, uh, the scripture that's being read here in the Old Testament was the Septuagint. And when those translators took the Old Testament words and translated them into Greek uh, for their audience, the word that they used for the term fear of the Lord, they translated, they used this word godliness. Um, so uh, they, as they looked back and said, what does it mean to, what's the fear of the Lord? That's the beginning of knowledge. What is the fear of the Lord that you read all through Psalms and all through Proverbs? They said, I think that's this word, God, this Greek word godliness, this word of um, not so much God-like, but duty that's owed towards God, the way that you ought to act, the um, way that God set that up for us is that, that Old Testament word, fear of the Lord, that's kind of pulled into this. Um, so it's kind of cool because it's, when I think of fear of the Lord, it almost is so foreign to my, my mind that it's hard for me to think, what does that look like for me? Am I supposed to be afraid of God? Um, but really, no, there's a, there's a way that we are ought to act and duty that we owe God, a godliness, an expectation on our lives of how we live. Um, that's the term fear of the Lord is really included in that. Um, so living sensibly, living godly lives um, because the Holy Spirit works in our lives and allows that to take place. Um, that's really what Paul is expecting here of us is that you are God's adopted kids. You, um, the death and the resurrection of Jesus has accomplished this in your life. And in the present age, this is how we do live. So I want to close by really just reminding us of, of this as an expectation of, of the passage here. Um, I think it is easy to feel like, like young Paul would do, that we really need to just emphasize justification by work. Stop thinking that there are markers that you must follow culturally in order to be a part of this group. And that is not true. We should not, there are not markers that we must follow in order to be able to be um, an adopted heir of God, a follower of Jesus. But there are on the back end, the other way. So don't get it backwards. It's not the first thing, um, but there are things that God now expects of us that he has made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is a purpose to our living. He doesn't say I've saved you. So now you can still continue to live this miserable, awful life where you're enslaved to lawlessness, where you're enslaved to sin, where you cannot be transformed. He says, I have saved you so that the Holy Spirit can transform you and you can lead, live this life of duty towards me the way that I expect of you, living intentionally and sensibly in how you live. Um, and that would be what I, what my hope for us from this is, is not any specific thing of do uh, this one trait or this one action, but that we would be intentional in how we are living our lives, that we're not pushed around by worldly passions, but that we each moment say, what would, am I God focused during this period? Am I God centered in how I'm choosing to live in this moment? Um, is that the thing that orients my life and, and causes me to uh, take the next step, the next direction I'm headed, the next words that come out of my mouth? Is it because I'm living sensibly, godly life, or is it, I'm not even thinking about that, I'm just being pushed around by my passions? So let's spend a moment and pray here. God, we do want to be like you and we do want to have you in our mind uh, and have you be the one who leads us, who shows us what each moment with the expectation is for us. Um, so I have two prayers for that, God. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us as you have said that you will do. 
that you have, God, richly lavished this Holy Spirit on us, given us not just a small little bit, um, but the Spirit of God is um, poured out on us, God. We need that. Uh, we need that in this present age. We are not people who can just live sensible lives without that. Um, we know that it is that we need grace training us uh, to seek you. So will you help us? Will you continue to do what you have said that you would do in this passage by working in our lives? And also, God, there is a weight to me using words like expectation that I am very aware of, um, that as soon as I say that this is just what Paul expects of us to live like this, that, that immediately can easily devolve into judgment of, do I measure up? Oh, I don't measure up. Oh, I am a failure. I can never do this. And God, will you take that away from us? Will you not let us think that we are justified by what we do? Help us to know that um, we are justified because of the work of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Um, and to stand strong in that and to move forward to live the kind of life that Jesus, that you got, that you want us to, that you freed us to do. Um, whatever our motivations are in that, they're, for me, they are always mixed. Um, some of it is that I want to trust that you have freed me and that I can live like this, so I step out and do it. And some of it is I wonder if this will make you like me, God, or this will make me feel justified before you or make me someone who um, can stand before you. And that is wrong, and I want to push away those motivations, but I also don't want those to inhibit me from taking those steps, God. So take us as we are. Uh, we know that your grace is good enough to cover even our um, legalism, even our sense that we are saved by our works and that um, your grace is good enough to take us where we're at and purify our motivations and uh, pull out the pieces of it that are wrongheaded and enhance the ones that are correct um, as we seek to live lives um, in all godliness and self-controlled sensibility. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.